right now, there are、uh, approximately 40 million people are carrying the virus as well. Basically, every country is impacted. This is a tremendous public health problem. If we're talking about the biggest misunderstanding, I think many people believe that they will die in a few years, but it's not real. I'm reasonably optimistic. You know, yes, we all aim to eradicate HIV, but to be honest, I think that that's unlikely in the short term. We really want everybody in the world to have the same access, because until we get that equality, it's going to be, you know, you'll never manage the outbreak in those perhaps poorer parts of the world. The chat lounge. Chat lounge. Chat lounge. The chat lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Hello and welcome to the chat lounge. I'm Tuyun. With only eight years away from reaching the goal of ending HIV/AIDS epidemic by 2030, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres warns we are off track towards the target. So, how far are we off track, and what needs to be done to get back on track? Joining our discussion today. Are Professor Ujue, director of the Center for Public Health Research at Nanjing University, Mr. Yufei, deputy director of medical affairs, Danlan Public Interest, leading HIV/AIDS prevention fund in China, and Professor Dominique Dwyer, medical virologist at West Mead Hospital in Sydney, Australia. Warm welcome to you all, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Great to have Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks to awareness promotion campaigns around the world over the past four decades, many, if not all, now know HIV/AIDS is a disease of the immune system. Some virologists compare HIV,、um, the virus, to a Trojan horse. So let's start with the basics, Professor Dwyer. How does HIV damage the human body? How is its、um, mechanism different from other viruses, if there is any? Well, the main feature of HIV is that the virus can infect what we call the T cells, which are the white cells in the body that are very much responsible for fighting infection.、Mm. The virus infects these cells, kills those cells, meaning that the patient's immune system is weakened, and from that weakening, they can end up getting other infections or cancers and other problems. So the key part about HIV is its ability to Really target the immune system, and、mm. other viruses tend not to do this. You know, it's quite different to respiratory infections like influenza or SARS-CoV-2. You know, this is really getting at the heart of the immune system. Then, how unique is it? You said it's different from COVID or, or SARS、um, virus. Well, yes, it's a member of a large family of viruses called retroviruses,、mm. which have a, a sort of fairly unique way of replicating or growing. Inside the cell,、uh, and there are other retroviruses that can infect humans, but HIV is the one that really causes the damage long term to the immune system. There are two types: there's an HIV one、mm. and an HIV two. But HIV one is by far and away the most important one worldwide.、Right. Uh, both of these viruses came from monkeys、uh, of one form or another, from chimpanzees, for example,、uh, and really. It's another example of a virus jumping from animals into humans and then causing disease.、Mm. Thank you. Right, and、uh, we know there are many other types of diseases of the immune system. Then, how come AIDS has a special day designated to it, Professor Wu? 
Well, it's, uh, the AIDS pandemic is one of the wide, you know, impact disease, mm. which basically, if you look at the, how many people became infected by the virus and how many people have already died of the virus, it's uh, a huge number, actually. Uh, about 40 million people have succumbed to the, uh, the viral infection. And right now, there are uh, approximately uh, 40 million people are carrying the virus as well. Mm. So if you look at the viral infection across the world, it's uh, basically uh, every country is uh, impacted. And, um, you know, this is a tremendous public health uh, problem, uh, not only to those countries which actually have a, a high number of infections, but also um, in the countries which have a relatively a, a small number of infections, the psychological impact, the medical burdens, and also the impact on the um, in the general sense in the public health also is tremendous. So that's why the WHO and other you know uh, public health organizations designate a particular day for this disease as a World AIDS Day. Then, then how destructive is it to, you know, the human body or to, to family or, or even the nation? I mean, if, if um, there is any est- estimation of the cost of AIDS to the economy. Well, the, the cost of the AIDS to the economy is uh, the whole uh, accurate estimation is hard to uh, achieve. But mm-hmm. if you look at the in the small scale, I'll give you an example that um, the AIDS epidemic impact like in China. Uh, in a particular province back some years ago in, in Henan province. And you can see that um, because of the economic burden uh, which brought into that area is just uh, tremendous. The local economy was uh, severely impacted. When the uh, infection spread in the family, uh, when the major you know, labor and the income burden actually got infected, became um, unable to work then the whole family is severely affected. And mm. particularly when the mother uh, are infected, the, uh, the virus transmitted in children, so basically the whole family was destroyed. But fortunately, that uh, transmission channel um, or method has been uh, eliminated in China, right? Basically. That's right, yes. Mm. Yes. And then, um, Professor Dwyer, I'm wondering, how destructive is, is it in Australia or to the Australian economy? Well, look, uh, uh, they're difficult questions to answer. I mean, Australia has had a modest impact from HIV, certainly much less than in many countries of the world, particularly perhaps in Africa and South America and Southeast Asia. But it has been a significant problem. The impact on the economy is difficult to measure, but we Mm. do know that the impact is quite significant because many of the people who get HIV or otherwise reasonably young people who are working and and so on. So the impact is significant. The other way to measure the economic impact is that we do know that providing free treatment and free access to testing, uh, free counselling, all of those sorts of things are cost-effective. In other words, the money you spend on those things is well and truly outweighed by the financial benefit of, of having healthy people. Mm, that's good to hear. And uh, for many years since the virus was identified in the 1980s, I believe, in, in the United States, HIV-AIDS patients have been you know, followed by the shadow of discrimination. So, uh, Mr. Yu, in your observation or your daily work, has HIV uh, social stigma and discrimination against AIDS patients gone down f- from before? Uh, I think so, for sure. 
I think the most important is the visibility of people living with HIV. Because more and more people can see their friends or their relatives who are HIV positive, they get used to this kind of issue, especially in some, we say, key populations, yeah, because the prevalence is relatively higher than the general population. The discrimination is relatively lower in this population. When you say key population, you mean? I mean those top populations who are affected mostly from HIV, such as the men who have sex with men, uh, sex workers, or injected drug users, such as migrants or the elderly. Can you give us some, you know, some specific example? For example, we have uh, we have done some survey about the attitudes towards people living with HIV, and we found that 10% of our research respondents that they have had sex with uh, people living with HIV. That means uh, it's much higher than 10 years ago which means more and more people are not afraid of this disease. Good. That, that's, I think, thanks to, you know, the awareness promotion campaigns carried out in the nation, right? Then, uh, Mr. Yu, what's the biggest misreading about HIV AIDS if we want to, you know, eliminate or reduce HIV stigma and discrimination against um, HIV carriers? If we're talking about the biggest misunderstanding, I think it's many people believe that they will die in a few years, but it's not real. Um, Professor Wu? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, there are a, a number of misunderstandings in terms of the uh, HIV-1 is that people thought that this is a virus which actually easily transmitted. And uh, if something is touched by uh, an infected individual, then uh, people are really scared to touch the things again. And the people trying to avoid direct contact with the AIDS patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they thought that, you know, by either talking to them and uh, share food and they will become infected. Those are complete misunderstanding of the virus and the basic biological features because the HIV virus is not that easy to transmit, frankly. Even you know sexual transmission, it happens in a very low efficiency, not like COVID-19, mm-hmm. which goes to from human to human very efficient. So those are the things actually uh, exactly what we need to do is uh, the education and let people understand how this virus is uh, being transmitted and how it causes disease. Right. And Professor Dwyer, do you have any different opinion on this uh, issue? I think all of those comments are really important. So, you know, having a good understanding of the approaches to uh, HIV in different populations and at-risk populations, you know, is really important. And and we certainly know that these patterns can be different or are different in different countries. So what might be, for example, Professor Wu mentioned the problems in blood donors early in the epidemic in China. You know, that was really important. That was perhaps less of a problem in Australia, but we had, you know, other problems with uh, infection in different populations. So You know, every country's got different issues, um, but there are common ways to improve things and manage things. But but in Australia, is there any misunderstanding or misreading about this uh, virus among the general public? Yeah, look, I think like uh, Mr. Yu has said, you know, things have improved in terms of understanding what HIV is and understanding how it spreads and understanding who or what are the groups in the community at risk. I mean, you know, I think uh, sort of 30 years ago in Australia, perhaps the community attitudes to, for example, uh, men who have sex with men was much less tolerant and understanding than what it is now. So I think that's been a really positive advance. It doesn't mean that all groups are well accepted. For example, 
injecting drug users are often a group where, you know, that, that are perhaps discriminated against just as much now as they were 30 years ago. So it's sort of really hysteric. One of the big things that's made a big difference, I think, in the way people think about HIV mm-hmm. is that now I think people are aware that if you get diagnosed and if you get treated, you know, as quickly as possible, then the life expectancy is really good, you know, almost normal. So I think, therefore, the attitude that HIV was a death sentence uh, that was, and this was common, you know, 30 years ago, is much less of a problem now than it used to be. So I think, therefore, the overall discrimination and so on has improved a lot Mm. in countries like Australia and and perhaps China, I don't know for sure. But in other parts of the world, it's still a problem. Be, you know, vigilant about this. Right. So there is no reason to um, get yourself scared or um, if you know that um, you're an HIV carrier. I think, you know, everybody was very scared when all this started, just like any new infection that comes along. Mm. Everybody gets scared. You know, what do we do? What's going on? We don't understand it. We don't have treatments or vaccines, all of those sorts of things. And we've seen it, this with every many diseases. It doesn't matter whether it's HIV. That's true. SARS or whatever, you know, everyone gets anxious. But as the knowledge gets better and as the communication with the population gets better, then this anxiety and so on settles down. And that then encourages people to come forward for testing and for management. And then if the drugs are good to treat, terrific. You know, you can can really help people. Mm. And also uh, the increased awareness of this disease is a result or a fruit, if you will, of this of years of campaigning, you know, especially by some international organizations like uh, the United Nations. Yep. And this year's World AIDS Day has the theme of um, equalize. So, Professor Dwyer, why is equality so important? What are well, we trying to um, equalize here? Yeah, I, I think equality is really, really important. Uh, what we do know with HIV, as we've discussed already, that you know, the patterns of disease and the number of cases and so on and the impact is very different in different parts of the world. So in a, you know, well-developed country like, say, Australia, well, we have access to free drugs, to free treatment, you know, uh, free counselling, all of those sorts of things. Mm. In other parts of the world, particularly those of lower, you know, socioeconomic access, then, you know, the access to free, you know, to drugs and treatment is really hard to get. So one of the big arguments is, well, you know, we've got these great treatments, but, you know, they are, or they have been very expensive, but how do we make it equal mm. uh, so that people in parts of the world that, where the government mightn't be able to afford the drugs, you know, how do we get, make it equal for those people to get treatment? Mm. Um, so equality and evening out the access to treatment and, and the access to testing and so on, we really want everybody in the world to have the same access, because until we get that equality, it's going to be, you know, you'll never manage the outbreak in those perhaps poorer parts of the world. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. And uh, we turn to China, you know, since China identified uh, the first HIV um, contractor in 1985 and infected Cases in the country have been on the rise. Now China has over 1 million HIV-AIDS infections. So, Professor Wu, where are these cases? 
well, uh, right now we have about 1.3 million uh, HIV cases in the country, and basically in all the provinces being identified with those cases. Although their distributions are not even even in some provinces like in Yunnan and Guangxi, there are high number of cases, and also along the economically developed east coast regions, and you see also quite a lot of cases. So the point is that um, so HIV is uh, is not a particular provinces or jurisdictions issues. It's basically a national issue. Mm. So those cases um, right now uh, basically under the management of you know various different jurisdictions and they receive their free drugs as well in China. And the other thing is that if you look at the uh, HIV cases in China, those cases are mostly in recent years sexually transmitted diseases. Mm. And the blood transmission nowadays in China is very low. Then, over the years, what would you say is the biggest progress the country has made in, in dealing with the epidemic? I think one of the most important thing is that, uh, you know, from the uh, government point of view, uh, formally recognized that the HIV AIDS is a realistic problem in China. And so over the years, the government developed a comprehensive policy in dealing with the uh, AIDS uh, epidemic and developed a very different care system, testing system and the free drugs. If you look at the from the middle mid 1980s in the last century to now, the free drug distribution system is it's gradually built up. Uh, initially, we actually uh, provided drug therapy to patients who actually have a certain uh, meet a certain CD4 numbers, which basically indicating the stage of their disease. But right now, once you are identified to be infected by HIV, you will receive free drugs and the testing and also the subsequent caring and following up services as well. So this is a tremendous step forward as this would give a lot of infected people. They don't have financial means to get the treatment to receive therapeutic regimen and the medical care. So I think this is very important. The mm-hmm. other thing is that through the years of the public campaign, education program and also communities, scientific community and the local communities efforts that people are starting to uh, this is just an infectious diseases. And it's uh, not that uh, from other infectious diseases as well. So this basically push forward the call that the equality the one big step forward. So some people nowadays they could step out saying that okay, I'm an uh, AIDS patient. It's uh, hard to imagine a decade ago 20 years ago in China, because you would be completely separated, isolated from the society, from community, and from your friends. So I think we are moving towards the right direction. So those are the big steps we have achieved over the years. Mm. I understand Dalan has been advocating Internet plus HIV prevention to integrate online and offline prevention efforts in China. So how does it work and what's the significance of, of such a solution nowadays? Would you please give us some um, specific examples? Yeah, I think the, that's because most people are active online. Most mm. people become active online. If we go back to 10 years ago, we do HIV prevention at uh, bars or saunas or uh, around friends, social networks. But right now, because more and more people are active online, we take advantage of Blue. Because we have 560 million active users mm. on Blue. So it's easy for us to just uh, 
for example, our splash screen poster can reach millions of target populations in just one day. And we set up a system to bridge online users who need HIV testing with offline services, not only those official VCT sites, but also uh, those testing sites run by social organizations. Right now, we have set up an online platform embedded in Blue, incorporating nearly 200 social organizations. They can do HIV prevention and health education through our app. And Blue is also a, a very good platform for social scientific research. We can do RCT, we can set up cohort, or just a cross-sectional service. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, uh, Dr. Yu's point that mm. uh, the the internet chat room it actually is uh, one of the very large social uh, gathering sites for men who have uh, uh, sex with men. Mm. Uh, back a few years ago, we did some study in the internet, uh, friend making and the chatting service, and it's just stunning. We actually specifically looked at the one side which actually has all the chat room in the major city. Uh, depends on which city you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, communities range from few thousand people to tens of thousand participants, and it's very active. You can see that we did a lot of analysis in terms of the information flow, and identified some so-called star talkers who actually has a tremendous influence on the participants. So um, basically, our you know key purpose of trying to understand whether this pattern of interactions would impact on the HIV uh, infection and the transmission. Mm. So uh, what is interesting is that we have certain evidence that the uh, chat room provides uh, a, a social um, avenue for them to interact, to make friends. So that would tremendously increase the individual's contact with the others. Mm -hmm. So they do um, have an intimate relationship, then basically you can postulate they would have a, a more sex, a sexual partner. So this would uh, increase the HIV transmission. So those are the, the really the interesting signs which actually are not existing in the last century. No, this is a completely new uh, revenue for the man who have sex with a man together to talk, to make friends. And this is where, you know, if we want to do a public health intervention, educational program, this is a good side to invest and to, to get in. Mm, I'm wondering, uh, Mr. Yufei, has the user, the number of users uh, increased uh, over the past, especially over the past three years during the COVID pandemic? Actually, because our app uh, set up at uh, 10 years ago, in, in recent three years, it doesn't change a lot. The expan expansion of our users are mostly from overseas, uh, such as the other East Asian countries or Southeast Asian countries. But and, in China, the active users are pretty stable. Okay. And um, Professor Wu talked about uh, sex between men and I'm wondering why men in China are four times likely to contract HIV AIDS than women in this country. Well, I think there are a, a, a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, from the social aspect, um, you can see that um, we are going through the tremendous social transformation. We, we transform from a, a relatively sexually uh, conservative society into a more open society. And as uh, we move forward, and you see that people's behavior, and their um, uh, value concept, and all sorts of things actually change. And this is not a surprise. If you look at the economic development in the world, for a country at our you know, income level, historically, you see a tremendous social transformation. 
and uh, you know social culture and all sorts of things. Uh, so I think this is probably the one of the major reason why people actually exhibit such big change in terms of their value concept, their behavior, their way of dealing with other people and with dealing with a different sex. This is one reason. The other is that as the new generation grow up and they actually are exposed to outside the world, they have a much more broader scope of the worldview. They will accept all sorts of you know, new concepts. I think this is the second reason. Of course, the other reason is that the people are now having a much uh, active and more active way of life. So those actually, I think, they are the key factors contributing why people starting having more open attitude in, in terms of, uh, towards the sex. Mm. But as for the uh, man who have sex with man, you know, biologically, uh, I do not know the reason. There are highly controversial issues. Right. But um, this is something we observed in the society. Uh, not only in China, but uh, uh, in the West as well, you know. And you, you talked about the infection uh, rate in, among young people is increasing. And there is a um, statistic showing that, uh, you know, uh, the infection growth rate in that group um, stood at some 30 to 50 percent annually over the past few years. So, Professor Wu, how concerned are you over this phenomenon? I'm actually uh, very concerned because uh, it's uh, surprising that you know, in the college students, if you look at the statistics that uh, the HIV AIDS uh, uh, infection rate in college students are going up very, very quickly. And many of them are transmitted through a homosexual contact. What is surprising is that uh, this uh, it used to be a quite a rare event, but in the past about uh, six to eight years, we see a dramatic increase, which actually contributes significantly to the uh, new AIDS, uh, infection cases. There are many reasons for that. Um, the, the key reasons I just mentioned, the overall in the society, people are much more open to the sex and the part, people are much more open to the same sex interactions. But the, the psychological reason or biological reason behind that, I don't fully have the evidence. Often I receive phone calls or the emails from uh, students asking questions whether they are under risk because they had a, a sexual intimacy with another man mm. and what kind of uh, you know, medical methods or approach they should take to deal with that. That actually, I think, give me a worrying indication that they don't try to openly seek medical advice. Instead, they approach uh, through a more kind of private uh, way to consulting. So uh, I think in the ways that uh, there is a, f- a reflection that um, there is a certain stigmatizing environment existing. So that's why they don't want to you know, go to a hospital taking a, a good medical advice. So, so that would prevent an effective prevention of such infection if it did happen. Mm, but I mean, shouldn't college students or the young people be the best educated group of um, you know, regarding the disease and when they have sexual behaviors, they, they should have um, seek some um, proper protection. Um, maybe we can find this answer or in, in Australia, Professor Dwyer, when we talk about this, we want to, you know, compare China with, um, you know, front runner in HIV AIDS uh, control or uh, prevention, which is Australia. So do you see any similar scenario in your country? And uh, what, what did you do with that? Uh, Look, yes, that's a very interesting uh, observation in China. So a couple of things that I've been listening to. One is that, uh, you know, in Australia, still men provide the majority of cases. The ratio is higher than four to one. It's probably 
about 10 or 12 for one men, male to female. Mm. Uh, and that's because the outbreak is mostly in men who have sex with men. Not entirely, but we do have slowly increasing rates of transmission among heterosexual people, in which case you would expect that the male to female ratio would be similar. We are also observing an increase in younger people presenting with HIV infection, and and that's a concern. I think there's a number of reasons why. First of all, it's because perhaps they're young people and they take risks and you know, don't look to the future. Yes, they should be well-educated and so on, but they still, you know, young people do risky things. Um, so that, that's one thing we have to acknowledge. I think we've certainly seen, it's probably more anecdotal than anything else, but, you know, sometimes, for example, the older MSM community who've been to the HIV era where drugs weren't available or were toxic or what have you, and they want to warn their younger MSM people, look, you know, you've got to be careful here. I mean, yes, you've got good drugs, but you still need to be careful to protect yourself against getting HIV, let alone other sexually transmitted infections. But younger people don't always take the advice of their elders, um, uh, at least in Australia. So, you know, there is a problem in HIV in younger people, and that means that our messaging and our communication with them has to be better and, you know, more sensibly targeted to them. You know, we can't just keep saying the same old things we say all the time to younger people. You know, they use social media differently. They experiment. Uh, Perhaps they use drugs more. I don't know. All of those sort of factors have got to be addressed in giving messages about safety against HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. So it's complicated, Mm. but I think, uh, you know, we are having to deal with you know, some increases in young people with HIV. Thank you. Right. And uh, Australia is obviously uh, one of um, leading country or one of the s- small number of countries with the, um, what you call the three 90s, 90% are diagnosed and 90% of those identified are on treatment and 90% of the patients have undetectable viral loads, which means they cannot transmit HIV sexually. And... Uh, Australia's HIV cases have hit an all-time low. I'm not sure how this um, COVID pandemic has um, affected um, the HIV AIDS situation in Australia, but it shows, you know, all we've just said shows how fruitful Australia's HIV prevention and uh, control work has been. Professor Dwyer, you you previously mentioned measures um, taken by the Australian government to reduce HIV transmission, but can you give us some, you know, a brief idea. What's the secret or the key, if you will, for, um, for Australia? Look, I don't, yeah, no, I don't think there's any particular secret. I think, you know, there's a couple of factors that I think have contributed to the minimisation of the impact of HIV in Australia. One is, you know, what happened fairly early in the, the, the epidemic in Australia was that there was a bipartisan approach amongst the politicians to control this infection. In other words, it didn't matter what your politics were, right or left or conservative, you know, that all the politicians agreed that this was a public health problem and that we needed to do something about it. Mm. And I think having what one might call buy-in or, or acceptance by all sides of politics meant that people could get on and do good quality public health work. And, uh, you know, we have seen in other countries around the world where 
you know, people have politicised HIV, like they have other infections for that matter. Uh, and I think that ends up being a problem because it stops people responding sensibly. So that's one thing. That's the politics. The second thing is, of course, deciding then that we're going to make the drugs and the investigations, you know, the tests and so on, uh, and the access free. So in other words, you know, everybody could get access to treatment. The other thing, too, I think that was helpful is that we do have a well-developed sexual health clinic network in Australia. So anybody can attend a clinic, a sexual health clinic. They don't have to pay. They can be anonymous if they want to be. So that encourages people to go and get tested. So that's a good thing. And then you can put them on treatment. Mm-hmm. Even more sort of difficult things like needle exchange programs for injecting drug users, you know, that was controversial when that was first talked about. But because all the politicians agreed and everyone said we've got to do something, even if they didn't like it, uh, needle exchange programs were made available pretty quickly to our injecting drug use population, whereas in other countries they didn't want to do it, needle exchange programs. So, you know, I think that needle exchange programs have minimised the impact of HIV in the community, and that's a good thing. And I think the other thing is that, you know, Australia is has a good standard of living. Uh, people have access to health pretty well, even in remote areas of the country, perhaps not as good as it could be, but still it's not too bad. So that access to the health system is also important, and I think we've been lucky from that point of view. So I think there's some of the things that have contributed to the fact that most people with HIV in Australia have been diagnosed. Most of them have got onto treatment, and the treatments, of course, are good, you know, much easier to take than they used to be. And most people who are on treatment are in good care, and so their viral load is monitored carefully, and most people have an undetectable viral load. All of those together mean that, of course, the likelihood of transmission of the disease in the community is reduced. So that's part of the contribution to why we're seeing sort of decreasing or, you know, reducing numbers of new infections in Australia. Mm. But, of course, that's quite different to other countries. Even within our region, if you look at countries, for example, in the Pacific or, uh, uh, you know, to the north of Australia, uh, you know, they have problems with HIV. So, you know, just because things are perhaps reasonably good in Australia doesn't mean that everybody else has got the same access. And so that takes us back to the equality that we were talking about in the beginning. You know, how do we make care equal for people in all sorts of different countries and locations? Right. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, There are some measures taken in Australia that cannot be actually copied in other countries, such as uh, China. And this needle exchange program uh, you just mentioned, Professor Dwyer, can you elaborate it a little bit? Um, Why is it so controversial? Well, look, so the process behind needle exchange is that, well, look, you know, we know that injecting drug users can acquire bloodborne viruses like HIV or hepatitis C by sharing needles. We all know that. Uh, people share needles and share the equipment used for injecting drugs. Mm-hmm. So that means everybody's at risk who are sharing these needles of getting a bloodborne virus. So the decision was made, well, you know, should we make needles free for drug users, they can just pick them up from the pharmacy, from the chemist, or from, you know, an injecting centre, or all of those sorts of, you know, lots of different ways. But anyway, by making the needles available and free meant that 
the drug users don't have to share the needle. So if they're not sharing the needle, then, of course, the likelihood of spread of the virus is reduced. So the needle exchange programs, you know, they were initially done by, you know, non-government organisations, by advocacy groups and so on. But now the government in Australia have realised that this is good and so the government supports, you know, the needle exchange program. So, you know, I think it's been ultimately a successful approach to managing, particularly in drug use. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we are talking about whether we can reach the goal of ending HIV-AIDS epidemic by 2030. Professor Wu and Mr. Yu, such programs cannot be adopted by China, right? Uh, let, let's, you know, uh, just look at the needle exchange program, which was uh, initiated in uh, 1990s in the U.S. I remember clearly that one of the reasons was that, uh, you know, as a professor, they were mentioned that the needle sharing was one of the major transmission rules for the HIV spreading among people at that time. Mm. But nowadays in China, the situation is uh, different. There are uh, blood immediate transmission, like uh, through the drug use, injection drug use, uh, the incidents are very low. Mm. So that's why first uh, we may not need uh, a needle exchange program in China. The mm. second is that I think in a society like in China, through the government fund to provide a free needle, probably I think it would be hard to promote because uh, that the injecting uh, drugs uh, a moral way of, of uh, your life. So I think there is a certain moral values involved here. Mm. So uh, that's exactly what actually happened in the uh, early 1990s when the U.S. promoted uh, the needle exchange program. At that time, I was in New York. And, um, you know, it was opposed by the church, opposed by uh, civil uh, groups, and uh, there are, um, you know, very uh, many uh, very complex factors initially uh, preventing this program to go ahead. Although, you know, later on, the program was moved um, uh, quite, you know, successfully and uh, helped to reduce the injection drug-related transmission. And uh, in terms of uh, China's policy, Professor, do you think we've had um, sufficient support for China's HIV-AIDS campaign? Well, I think, you know, it is. The government has set aside a huge fundings for uh, HIV prevention and intervention. Um, but, you know, if you look at the, the policy back into the late 1990s and the increasing number of new infection cases, I mean, indeed, I have to admit that the fund cannot catch up the increase of the uh, infected cases. So that's why actually uh, when the government introduced this so-called four freeze, one care policy, and it was promoted all over the country, there is a, um, you know, basically mo- mobilization of all levels of uh, public health services uh, in the country trying to bring down the, the new infections, trying to bring down the AIDS-related deaths. But we, we made a tremendous advancement, but still I think we have a long way to go. If you look at the, the uh, monthly case related to death, I, I just look at the, you know, this year's July AIDS related to death, it was uh, in the 1,500, which is uh, a bit too high mm. as we have drugs that could change this disease into a chronic disease. So we, we still have a lot to do here. Right, of course. And uh, Mr. Yufei, as, a, as someone who, from this uh, uh, leading HIV prevention fund, what's your take here? 
Uh, actually, China has undertaken needle exchange and methadone pilot program to prevent HIV transmission among injected drug users. And it's pretty successful, actually, because mm -hmm. recently the HIV infection rate among injected drug users in China is very low. So the, the biggest challenge for, for China is uh, sexual transmission, not only among men who have sex with men, but also in heterosexual populations. In, in some provinces like Sichuan or, or Yunnan, more than half of their cases are among heterosexual populations. Uh, in terms of a policy uh, policy support, what's your take? For, you... the, for the policy, actually, there is a project uh, funding for NGOs' participation in HIV prevention. That is, the, the government will provide funding for non-government organizations in, in China to conduct HIV testing and education and treatment programs. But it's compared with, uh, for example, before 10 years, there will be some international funding to support HIV, HIV prevention projects in, in China. Compared with these uh, international funding, the, the government funding is not e enough, actually. And it hasn't been changed for almost 10 years. And it becomes more and more difficult for policy advocacy in HIV prevention field, from our understanding. Um, probably because the infection rate is low here, and it's not so, so underlined by some local governments. I think it's one of the reasons. The other reason is there is still some pressure in the government among their different departments. For example, some patients of other diseases will criticize the government, why you provide free treatment for people living with HIV, but not for us. There will be some controversial issues among the government different departments. Professor Wu, do you see any solution here? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, uh, Doug's assessment. Well, you know, basically, I came back to China in the early 2000. At that time, actually, we had some of the quite active uh, research programs looking into the HIV AIDS, not only in, in terms of vaccine development, but also in prevention in intervention, and also trying to look into the how to prevent the sexually immediate transmission. But in the recent years, as the overall focus of the government public health policy shift, apparently uh, you don't really see an increase in terms of prevention and intervention investment in this area. I think the one thing we should do is that the government should have an overall comprehensive long-term policy in dealing with this disease, although it may not be in, in a kind of a desperate urgent like uh, COVID-19. Mm. But the HIV AIDS is a, a long-term chronic disease nowadays, uh, which actually has a tremendous burden in the society's uh, public health uh, sectors. The, not only the central government, I think the local government uh, municipalities, they should basically uh, coordinating this according to their own economical capability, increase the investment in this particular area to provide a better health and a better care for the infected. Mm. Uh, Professor, I'm not sure if you've worked with any Australian peers, but um, what do you think we can learn from Australia then? I think a few things, um, as uh, Dr. Dua mentioned, that I think the key is that because of the HIV AIDS is basically uh, related uh, with behavior, uh, since the sexual transmission is the major, the dominant route of transmission in China. Right. So the education is, is very important. In the discussion, I remember you mentioned why, you know, those uh, young kids, uh, the college students who are mostly well-educated, they still have the high incidence in, in, the, in the transmission in the recent years. I, I think 
there are a number of issues here. Uh, one is that it's an assessment of the risk. Mm. When I talk to students, apparently they are aware of how HIV is transmitted. And they knew that this is a deadly disease. But in the meanwhile, they seem to lack the knowledge of the assessment of the risk. Because for many you know, infectious diseases, people tend to take that so-called opportunistic mentality. Mm. Basically, that means that maybe it's not me. Okay, then they're willing to take a risk. So that's the problem. So uh, I think our education uh, needs to let people know not from the biological side, the virus, how it's transmitted, but also they need to understand the risk that when they take an unsafe sex action, they can uh, become infected. And this infection would lead to a tremendous disruption of their career and their, their life. Mm. And those are the things actually, you know, in our education, in our you know, promotion or delivery of the message should be included in them. The second thing I think we need to learn from uh, Australia is that I have a number of Australian uh, research collaborators. The government investment in the HIV AIDS, the medical aspect is a long term. Mm. They have a long term strategy. Okay, and looking into the therapeutic drugs. So Australia has a quite a comprehensive research platform. Right. So this is something uh, we may not be able to immediately resolve or cure the disease, but lay down the foundations for us to move ahead to deal with the disease and develop better class of drugs. So this is something actually we need to learn. Mm, right. And a final question, as we, we mentioned earlier, um, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was warned we are off track towards the target of ending AIDS epidemic by 2030. But in the case of Australia, it seems um, the picture seems rosy there. And, you know, there's reports saying Australia could be the first country to eliminate HIV transmission or end this epidemic. So how optimistic are you? Shall we start with Professor Dwyer? Oh, look, I think I'm uh, reasonably optimistic. I mean, you know, yes, we all aim to eradicate HIV, but to be honest, I think that, you know, that, that's unlikely in the short term, but we can certainly make a really significant impact. So I think that the sort of work that's been successful so far needs to continue. Um, and like all diseases, the more that, People learn from each other, collaborate and share information and, and so on, the more likely you are to come up with good answers. I think just because we're doing well in Australia doesn't mean that we can relax. Mm. Uh, and as I said before, you know, we have lots of, you know, countries near Australia that have very big HIV problems. So, you know, for example, in Papua New Guinea, just mm. to the north of Australia, you know, very big problems with HIV. So I don't think we should be too happy with ourselves because there's still a lot more to be done. And I think that whatever we're doing that's working, we've got to continue to analyse whether it's working or not. You know, is our messaging working? Are our treatment strategies working? So again, research uh, is always really important. And it's not just medical research around finding a vaccine or better drugs, but also social research, you know, understanding how do populations think about HIV? What do our young people think? What do our men who have sex with men think? What do our injecting drug users think? You know, what do people in rural areas think compared to people in urban areas? You know, there's a lot, a lot of differences in every single country. So uh, I guess I'm saying that we are going well, but of course we can always do better. 
and we need to bring along everybody on this journey, not just within Australia, but in our region and also around the world. Mm. And you just mentioned uh, the drug or, or medicine for this disease. Um, I just want to ask, how far are we from a you know, HIV vaccine uh, for humans? We've already had some vaccines to kill HIV virus and, and monkeys, right? Yeah. Look, I think it's difficult. I think it's proved more difficult than people thought. Um, you know, obviously a successful vaccine would be fantastic, but it's proven to be difficult and there are many reasons why but you know one of the reasons is that you know the way HIV can spread to people you know they don't have to have symptoms they may not know they've got infected uh, uh, people may not know they're spreading the virus so there's a lot of reasons why a vaccine is difficult mm. and one of the really important scientific reasons is that you know once HIV does get into an individual the virus can sit there in a very you know, relatively dormant state. In other words, you know, the person can be infected but have no symptoms or problems or anything like that. So, you know, that's sort of a particular issue. Um, and I think the other issue is, oh, look, there are many issues. Another issue is that very many parts of the body can be infected with the virus. Mm -hmm. So it's in the blood, it's in our immune system, it's in the brain, in the gut, all of those sorts of things. So if you're going to develop a vaccine, Developing one that induces or makes a good immune response all through the body is really important. Um, and that's been a difficult target. So, look, there's been an enormous amount of effort go into this. I'm sure we will find an answer eventually. But I think it's fair to say that the answer has been slower than we would all like. Mm. And uh, if we cannot develop such a vaccine in the near future, does that mean that it's hard to accomplish this goal of ending AIDS epidemic um, as scheduled. Uh, Professor Wu, how optimistic are you? Well, um, in the long term, I'm open, optimistic that if you, um, if we could have an effective vaccine, we will be able to stop the uh, epidemic. But uh, we have to understand that the vaccine is not in a solution uh, completely resolve the, the AIDS uh, issues. If you look at it historically, very few viral diseases uh, can be completely stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, you can count just the very few. Uh, polio is, is one, but overall the virus actually could uh, mutate. If you look at the HIV virus, it has a tremendous ability in evading human immune system. Mm -hmm. So I would guess that it would be equally able to evade a vaccine's uh, suppression. So that's why I think that vaccine uh, investment research is a long-term goal we may feel one, two, and even 10, but if you stop doing it, then you will never have a vaccine. So the key message is that uh, we need to gradually understand how the virus adapts to the human body and how to evade our own immune system. By uh, doing this, we understand more and more and develop a more effective vaccine. So if we do have a vaccine, even if it does not completely eradicate the virus, it will significantly reduce the infected population it would have a tremendous impact in the global public health. Mm, indeed. And uh, Mr. Yufei, we've got only eight years to go before we reach this uh, 2030 deadline. How optimistic are you? Actually, well, I'm not that optimistic. Just as Dr. Professor Wu said, uh, our pessimism of perspective doesn't prevent us from making consistent efforts. True. 
to achieve the, this goal, actually, mm. especially for the for the first goal, that is uh, make people who get infected to understand their HIV standards. That is promoting more and more people to do HIV testing. That's the most important. And also we should learn from Australia because most of the newly identified HIV cases are found through hospital. People go into hospital not for HIV testing. They're doing other health services. Mm. But they're, to them, that is accidentally found they are HIV positive. So that means we still have a lot of health education to do to make people be aware of their risk and to be aware that maybe I am HIV positive or something like that. Mm. Right. Uh, Professor Wu, you were saying? Well, um, I, I fully agree with uh, uh, Dr. Yu's assessment. Um, I'm not, you know, fully optimistic about this goal. I'll give you one example that uh, I'm uh, I'm quite concerned that if you uh, look at the recent years, the drug therapy or, or so-called ART, antiviral, uh, 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 antiretroviral therapy, the drugs actually made a, a significant contribution in controlling the disease. So basically that uh, a patient could live for a long, long uh, time. So that in the way actually discourages the the government sectors, public sectors investment in the vaccine and other basic research. So, um, you know, the landscape actually changed uh, drastically uh, over the past decade that you see um, very little uh, vaccine studies, very little uh, basic research or, uh, for uh, it's going on. So this is something actually we have to uh, fully aware of that uh, the current ART could control the virus replication in the patient. Mm. Make the patient live longer, but the patient still are carrying the virus. It cannot solve the virus. You can't eradicate the virus. So this is something actually we need to have a more strategic view and have a balanced uh, policy making. And not only in terms of a drug therapy, we need to do the investment, but also we need to look into the more basic science and the vaccine development. So this is just a trial and error process. Uh, you know, but doing this, you could move forward and achieve the, the goal of eradication. Mm. But it seems uh, Professor Dwyer is the only one who are uh, reasonably optimistic about this uh, goal being achieved and scheduled. But let's hope we can soon find a cure for HIV and um, HIV-related um, social stigma and discrimination can be eliminated at an early date. And with that, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Professor Dominique Dwyer, medical virologist at Westmead Hospital in Sydney, Professor Wu Jiwei, director of the Center for Public Health Research at Nanjing University, and Mr. Yufei, deputy director of medical affairs Danlan Public Interest. Please feel free to leave a review or comment for us and subscribe to the chat lounge wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tuyun. Thank you for being with us. Talk to you soon.